Good evening, listeners. It's July 16th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU, and or if you're interested in uh, just learning about some of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, you can visit our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration to find out more about our up-and-coming guests and uh, find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Rebecca Maher from the Department of Microbiology in the College of Science, and she is conducting research in the Vega Thurber Lab related to how different environmental factors impact coral reef health. Hi, Becca. Hi. Nice to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing as far as your research goes? Sure. So I'm actually getting ready for my first field ste- field season as a as a new grad student here in the Vega Thurber Lab, and I will be going to Morea, French Polynesia, in about a little over a month to study how nutrient pollution and overfishing on coral reefs, which are two major local stressors affecting coral reefs around the world, how they affect the microbes that live within the coral tissue. So these local stressors that you mentioned, um, what are these? Can you go a little bit more into what these are, what these are comprised of? Sure. So we kind of, as coral reef scientists, we're constantly faced with this this kind of doom and gloom scenario where coral reefs are dying around the world. And the three major threat stressors that are affecting that are um, climate change, which we hear a lot about, and that's a, a global stressor. Um, but then there's also local stressors, which scientists and local policymakers can, can help to understand and mitigate at a local level, so coastal communities, um, things like that. And so the two that I'm looking at are nutrient pollution. So if you have... Um, a lot of agricultural activities going on along the coast, all of that runoff from those fields is going to go into the ocean, and that can increase the nutrients on a coral reef. And coral reefs are really nutrient-poor waters. That's why they're so clear. Um, and so that can have a lot of detrimental effects to, the, to how the ecosystem functions and to coral health. And then overfishing is where we just see of fishing down the food web, you know, they start with the big fish because those are the economically uh, desirable ones. And then as those are fished away, you go down to the smaller fish and then eventually you can remove a whole group of players in an ecosystem that have established a function that all the other species in that ecosystem depend on. So I'm looking at how the presence or absence of herbivores on a on a reef will affect coral and herbivores are especially important because they eat algae and macroalgae so big leafy algae that you see growing on coral reefs these grow really fast whereas corals grow really slowly so these 
herbivores help to control the competition that these corals have with the algae. So when you remove the herbivores, then you have an overgrowth of algae and the coral have a harder time competing and we see a loss of, of coral cover on these reefs. Okay, so the, the algae overgrow if there are not enough fish, but how are the microbes then involved with the coral? Yeah, so microbes are what I specifically look at. So any perturbation you have in the system, be it the loss of herbivores or an, an influx of nutrients into the water, is going to affect the microbes that are associated with corals. So I study the coral microbiome, which is made up of bacteria, archaea, viruses, bacteriophages that all live within the coral tissue. And there's also eukaryotes that live in there. So the big thing that people have been talking about now is coral bleaching, which is where we see the loss of symbiotic algae that live within the coral tissue. And so they're a very important symbiont that lives in the tissue. But I focus on the bacteria that live in corals. And there's and it's not just in the coral tissue. What they've found recently is that um, you have three distinct communities of microbes that live in a coral. So coral is basically, um, it's an animal, and it forms a thin layer of tissue over a calcium carbonate rock. And so the coral secretes calcium carbonate, and that's what makes the substrate that um, creates coral reefs, and that's what makes the habitat for a lot of the fish and sponges and invertebrates that live on coral reefs. And so the microbial community in that calcium carbonate rock is distinct from the microbial community that lives in the tissue. And then corals also secrete a mucus layer. It's kind of a defensive layer against pathogens. Um, and that has its own distinct community. So my lab has looked at the differences between those, co those microbial communities in the past. Oh, cool. And so so you're saying the coral, this is an animal that secretes a rock-like substance. That just blows my mind. But so it creates a habitat that is that we all know to be important because we're hearing a lot about coral reefs in the media and how they're in decline. So so why why is it important for us to learn all that we can about coral reefs? Right. So we're losing coral reefs. Um, we know that these massive global bleaching events have decreased some of the big charismatic coral reefs like the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and it's really important because at, at a base level, I mean, they're very beautiful and aesthetically um, pleasing. And it's, it's a huge tourism uh, attractant, which is awesome for these all the coastal communities, ecotourism is a huge part of their, their livelihood. And in addition to that, also the fishing that goes on in, in these coral reefs is a huge part of not only their livelihood, but also that's how they get their food. Um, and a lot of the, the major fish that we see, like the, the big predatory fish that we eat, even though they don't necessarily live on coral reefs, a lot of times in their juvenile stages, they are on coral reefs. So coral reefs can serve as nurseries for big game fish. Um, and then coral reefs are also this huge structure that that is built around the edges of, of islands. And so that provides kind of a barrier against storm surges, against flooding, against against erosion that could happen to the coastal shoreline. And so 
they're protecting the islands from these massive storms and they're providing um, a huge economic value, not only to the coastal communities, but also to the world with the, with the fish that grow there. So I wanted to go back to this idea of nutrient enrichment. So on the surface of things, it would seem like increased nutrients might be a good thing, but it's actually a detrimental impact to have this dysfunction created when you have more nutrients input to the system. Can you speak a little bit more about what happens? Sure. So when we get this influx of nutrients uh, and there's a massive amount of literature looking at all the different aspects of how this affects a coral reef. Um, at a macro level, we see algae really grows and and thrives in nutrient-rich waters. That's why you look at a nutrient-rich lake and it's really green. So that's w- what we call eutrophication. And so that's what ha- what's happening when um, this nutrient gets put into into reefs, and that can be nitrates and nitrites from from agricultural runoff or phosphates and those are the main ones that that scientists look at and so we can see this increase in macroalgae which is again is a coral competitor but we cannot we also see a lot of increase in coral disease and that's a huge avenue of research that that people are are trying to understand because we have identified a lot of coral diseases, but we don't know really what causes them and especially how they interact with coral bleaching, which is affecting corals around the world. Um, and so we see that nutrients exacerbates these issues that are already there or or in, it puts them there in the first place. With In the case of diseases, they're really trying to find what's the mechanism that that we see this nutrient influx and then we see this proliferation of disease on the coral reefs, but maybe that's a microbial mechanism. Maybe there's some pathogen, pathogen that's preferentially um, selected and, and proliferates whenever we see this nutrient in, enrichment. So it can affect things at, at the macro level, but also at the, at the micro level. So it's important to understand all of the dis- different aspects that go into it so that we can really prevent more coral die-off. Okay, so I see I see the picture that you're painting for me is that nutrients run off from agricultural lands, let's say, and then they uh, invigorate the algae. And then if there's also overfishing, there's not going to be these herbivore fish that eat the algae. So they're going to be out-competing the coral, and it's just a vicious cycle, right? I, right. <laughs> I want you to, um, if you could, just go into like your experimental design and the kind of uh, things that you have in store this summer for uh, studying these interactions. Sure. So one of the things that drew me to the lab here, the Vega Thurber Lab at Oregon State, is we have this tie with uh, the biological research station, the Gump station at Maria French Polynesia. And so that allows us to do manipulative ecological experiments on the reef, but it also allows us to pair it with tank experiments at the station on shore. And so what I'm doing is working with our collaborators at UC Santa Barbara in the Berkey Pile Lab, um, and we're setting up an experiment where in tanks I'm going to manipulate 
nutrient influx into the water and then I'm going to manually wound the corals. So we take corals from the reef and we put them in these tanks and then we apply these different treatments or combination of treatments of nutrients, which is in my case, I'm going to be using nitrate and then or predation. And in the tanks, we're going to manually wound with like little pliers. And then the fun part is you take that experiment and you replicate it on the reef. So to to simulate nutrient enrichment, we have fertilizers that you would put in on your garden at home. And we have slow release fertilizers that we put there and these little experimental plots on the reef. And we set up where we have corals hammered down, glued down, and then we put cages around them. So that prevents the parrotfish from going in and biting the coral. So that's simulating overfishing. And so we can have this parallel experiment in tanks and on the reefs and where we study overfishing and the effects of nutrient enrichment. And we can see that having this parallel design allows us to see if the issues that happen with overfishing or, for instance, predation, is that because the coral's wounded or is that because it's wounded by a parrotfish? Because parrotfish have their own microbiome and they could be introducing different players into the system. Okay, and so how, just to, just to explain a little bit further, how is the parrotfish uh, biting the coral a sign of overfishing? Right, so what the cages are doing, the cages are preventing the parrotfish from biting the coral. Okay. So, but it's also preventing the parrotfish from biting the algae. And so a lot of times we've, we've replicated this experiment before, this experimental design, and we see the caged corals, we see that growth of macroalgae, which is seen in traditional, um, as most studies say happens, right? When we have overfishing, we see this influx of macroalgae growth. But what I'm looking at is an interesting finding that we found, that my lab found in the Florida Keys, where actually when parrotfish are present, we know that they are herbivores, but they also supplement their diet by biting corals. And so you see a lot of the sand that makes up our beaches is actually parrotfish poop. And so they wow. they supplement their diet by biting the, the corals, and then um, that calcium carbonate gets ground up and they poop it out as sand. But And this is usually... Um, fine for the corals. They can recover from these, these woundings by parrotfish. So it's like a little gash in the, in the tissue, but they can recover. But we see that when there's enriched nutrients in the system and parrotfish are predating these corals, we found a increase from zero to 62% mortality, which is, which is incredible. Um, in the, in the Florida Keys. So we think that as parrotfish are these beneficial players to the coral reef, however, we're seeing that they're agents of mortality in the case of waters with nutrient enrichment, which is happening on many reefs around the world. And so if we're looking from a management standpoint, if, if, we, if we restore fish populations on the reef while not simultaneously cleaning up the water, it could prove fatal for a lot of corals. And so I'm really interested in understanding the microbial component that is leading to this mortality, whether it's, it's reduced 
immune system on the coral host side or if it's the introduction of a pathogen from the parrotfish. We're trying to tease this apart and figure out what's the mechanism that's turning these beneficial herbivores into into an agent of mortality for corals. So basically the the coral could be susceptible to the bacterial opportunism. Right. Um, yes. Once you introduce this disruption in the the native composition of the water with the nutrient enrichment. Right. Okay. So the interesting thing about this is that these corals are, they've taken a long time to form, right? And so right. they're disappearing rapidly. And so it's sort of a race against time to determine how we can mitigate this and is it possible to reverse these effects or it's it's mostly just to mitigate the damage right um, well it's and this is kind of the what we have to face every day getting up as a coral reef scientist is that we're studying an ecosystem that could be gone soon you know i've i've heard estimates what it's 2050 or you know within our lifetime coral reefs could be gone and it's it can be frustrating at times, but it's also very motivating because we want to we want to protect them and we need to act fast. And some people, um, there's groups in Florida and even in Colombia that are looking at coral nurseries where they outplant corals onto a reef and looking to 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 stimulate growth and and build that that hard substrate by outplanting them on little coral trees. They're, they're pretty awesome. Um, and there's also, from the, from the microbial standpoint, we know that some of the symbiotic algae that I mentioned earlier, we know that some of them are more resistant to heat stress. And for instance, in the, in the Red Sea, we see corals thrive there, have, and, and the water is is very, very salty. It's really high salinity and it's also really hot, but we know that corals can survive there. And so they take the symbiotic algae that are in those corals and maybe they're thinking they can inoculate corals around the world with that specific algae and maybe it can help them to, to withstand thermal stress that coral reefs are experiencing around the world. So there's a lot of different avenues of of mitigating or preventing in the future um so it's it's exciting and it's scary at the same time but i'm hopeful i wouldn't be studying this ecosystem if i didn't feel like i could make a difference right and uh in in your work with with french polynesia don't you have uh plans for some kind of outreach to the native people there um, or right. to the people that live there to help them kind of feel it as invigorated as you do? Yeah, so in the past I've done some work where we printed out giant photos of, of the coral reef ground and then you, you print it on um, like laminated canvas and it's pretty awesome because you can sink it in a pool and then give a bunch of kids some snorkel gear and they can snorkel over a coral reef and because a lot of people will never get to see coral reefs, but they're amazing and everyone should experience it. But this 
awesome aspect with working with Morea at the and the Gump station that we're working at has tied with a community outreach center called the Atia Outreach Center in in Morea and they have contacts with all the local schools there and so we're looking to do some of this work where we print out photos of the reef there in Morea and so they can see their reef and they can put it on on the ground and then they can use some of the tools that we use in the field such as measuring tapes or or square PVC quadrats to count the coral to get a measure of coral cover which is um, a traditional measure that coral reef scientists use to to assess reef health and so they can use some of the equipment and learn some of the skills that that we do as scientists so they can learn to appreciate their reefs from the scientific point of view and they can see what we're doing and and how it's making a difference for them because I'm sure they already have an appreciation for their for their coral reefs and they're they're sharing it with us and letting us be there which is incredible and and they've been so uh, helpful in in getting us access to those reefs and in getting us the tools we need and so it's important to give back uh, there in the field in Morea but also here in Oregon so so one thing I'm wondering is how did you come to this field of study did you um, participate in any research in your undergrad and actually what did you study in during your undergrad so I was an ecology and evolutionary biology major, so microbiology is new to me this year. Um, so I grew up with a lot of pets and fishing all the time, so I knew I always wanted to do ecology. Some, And for a while I was interested in, in primates and went through, ran through the rainforest and did all that, but the once I started diving and scuba diving on a coral reef, I was sold, and I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was lucky to have a a great mentor in undergrad where uh, I was able to work with her, and even though we didn't have a marine department, I, I was in Houston, Texas at Rice University, so we were pretty close to um, Galveston, Texas, which is on the coast, and there is the headquarters for the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary, and so that's where I did my undergraduate research and um, looking at how biological organisms bioerode, so they they erode into the calcium carbonate skeleton, which again has implications for uh, reducing the the substrate that's available on a reef for for fish to that provides shelter for the fish. So that was pretty exciting. I got to dive after undergrad in, in the flower garden bank. So I spent a year looking at photos from this coral reef and then I actually got to go and dive there. And it was, it was incredible and very reaffirming that I was in the right uh, discipline. And so you had a couple of different research experiences that you participated in where you were able to travel abroad is that right yes yeah where did you go so I went to first I got scuba certified in Houston and then I I immediately got to go spend a summer working as a research assistant in Honduras where I spent half the time in the rainforest and half the time uh, on the coral reefs and that's 
I, I set that up on purpose because I was like, I need to decide, do I want to be terrestrial or marine? And and it was an amazing experience. And I fell in love with the coral reefs and I fell in love with marine science and, and met a lot of really inspiring scientists there. Um, and then I got to go to Ecuador with a study abroad where I was in a program that wasn't marine oriented. So I, I studied capuchin monkeys in the cloud forest in Ecuador. Um, and then after that, I just zeroed in on marine biology and have been diving ever since. <laughs> and so how did you decide then to go to Oregon State to pursue graduate work and then at Oregon State specifically? So I always knew that I wanted to be a graduate student, partly because I didn't want school to end. I wanted to keep <laughs> learning. Um, and I also just love doing research. I love um, working at my own pace and and this constant coming up with questions and constantly searching for answers and learning new techniques and meeting new people who are experts in some little thing and, and learning learning from them. And it's the whole structure of of graduate school is is very exciting, and I I've always wanted to do that. And um, and then I came to Oregon State because the because of the lab I'm in, um, the Vega Thurber Lab has is an incredible lab and has done amazing research. And we have all of these ties with uh, collaborators around the world, and we have some projects that have gone to reefs around the world, and it's in incredible the scope of some of our of our research projects and so just to be able to be a part of something like that and know that we can make a difference and and then the resources that are here at OSU with the with the bioinformatics support and the and the DNA sequencing resources that we have here were just incredible and um and I also really like Oregon so (laughs) it's great Awesome. Well, what is next for you then? So your first year, so you next is a lot of work, but yeah. <laughs> what do you think will be next after your PhD? Um, probably a postdoc, hopefully not several postdocs, but <laughs> probably a postdoc. And then um, I really like NOAA. I've worked with a lot of NOAA scientists, so the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, so I think that would be a pretty awesome job. Um, but I'm also not um, close to academia and running my own lab. It would be tough, but I think it would be very rewarding. Cool. So, so we are getting down to the end of our show. Uh, Lily, why don't you tell us about our uh, traditions? Yeah, so on the show here we have... Um, couple of things that we usually do and one of them is that we would like to hear some advice from you about um, sort of what you would tell yourself um, as you were starting graduate school or to another student thinking about graduate school or beginning the the journey as it were. Sure so I wish I could have told myself when when you need help on anything ask because everybody's busy and everyone looks really busy but everyone needs help and and usually they're 
gonna help you and they're gonna be happy to help you because they've been there um so a lot of the time I when I finally got the courage to ask for help it made everything so much easier so reach out to the resources that are available to you absolutely definitely and then the second one is for you to provide us with a song and so uh what song did you pick and uh why so I picked Octopus's Garden by the Beatles um, because it's very reef themed and <laughs> they're my favorite band. And I think I that was probably one of the first songs I ever heard when I was a baby. So <laughs> great. Yeah, good choice. Well, you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis and we will be back not next week, but the week after that, with John Pettit or Josh Pettit yeah. from uh, Forest Ecosystems and Society, and uh, Becca Maher from yes. Department of Microbiology. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you, thank you. And this is Octopus's Garden by the Beatles. I'd like to be. Under the sea In an octopus's garden In the shade He'd let us in 